Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Ao. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Hey, Jackson, good to have you on board. Hey, thanks for having me here, Jeremy. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing to see what you've managed to build in the pop culture space. And I'm so excited to share your journey and your experience and your thoughts on this space. Yeah, happy to share. It's interesting because we have both been on the Forbes 30 and the 30, you know, a whole like, you know, list of random X 2020 or X and all these things. Obviously, you're a scary person, Jackson, because everyone's like, oh, who is this man, the myth, the legend, right? So tell me, like, you know, how would you actually introduce yourself? What's been your journey? Well, I'm scary because it's mostly off the beard, right? <laughs> but how would I describe myself? That's interesting. I'm someone who's intrigued by building a business or building a brand. And that term is entrepreneur, right? But I tend to lean towards passions that I love. You know, it could be cameras at one point of my life. It could be art. Um, well, right now, it's definitely collectibles, pop culture. And I like to think that as I move along in my life, I'm able to add accumulatively this knowledge that I have and apply and create something with whatever passion that I have next. How would you articulate your journey from day one, whichever day one is, all the way to the person you are today? I don't think we have three hours, but <laughs> I'll condense it. I think it was in polytechnic. I think I was about 17, 18 or so that I started to have a seed idea, right? That, hey, you know, I'm trying to get into, I come from digital media background. I build websites, interactive games and, and stuff like that. And I thought, okay, now I want to go into this industry, this advertising agency. They have to go to place for creatives like me. And I thought, okay, you know, can I get into Oglivy? Can I get into such and such and stuff like that? And then I thought, you know, I want to go into a workplace that I can wear shorts. And that was, <laughs> I mean, my street cred just went down, but <laughs> that's basically how it happened. I want to go into work with shorts anytime that I want. And I thought very long. And creating my own business, it seems reasonable. And that idea upon graduation began to take form. I did a lot of photography and I started to follow, you know, professionals. How do I run my own sole proprietorship and be a, you know, photographer? But then I realized I'm trading my time for money, which is something that I don't really want to do. And it's not very scalable. Of course, when I was that young, I, I don't really have all this tips, entrepreneurship scalability and stuff. All I thought was very basic and very logical. Like, I don't want to keep trading my time for money. And then I thought, okay, then I need to create a structure that allows me to go beyond. And that structure is in the form of products. And coming from photography, then I went into selling the camera brands itself. So cameras itself. So that was how it all started. How do you go from cameras to where you are today in pop culture? So... With cameras, that was, I guess, the first taste of entrepreneurship and everything you got to do yourself pretty much, right? And, you know, I started a brand called Red Army Camera and it caught the attention of some partners that eventually went to a partnership with me. 
And we begin importing these vintage 1980s cameras from Russia. Our point person in Ukraine actually found a factory that's abandoned and he bought the dead stock inventory from that factory and ship it over to Singapore. So it's quite an operation of things. And we did really well. But that was my first taste of partnership, right? And I went through a lot of curves. Like when I tried to sell this product to a chain store. So back then it was a chain bookstore called Page One in Singapore. And they sell all kinds of art books and art materials. And they asked me like, what is your shipping terms, your FOB and your product packaging? And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I just totally couldn't get it. And I began to read up on it. How do we actually present ourselves as a professional company? Or at least try to be. And through that experience with my partnership, uh, I realized that it's not easy too, because you can manage the product, you can manage the process, but it's the people that it's the key piece to the puzzle because along the way, our objectives and perspective change. And at the end of the day, I have to leave that company, which was very painful because it was the first real company that I have and it was doing decent amount for a 20-year-old NS boy and it was hard you know I'm not afraid to say I cried and it was very very painful through that I began to pack up my stuff into my box and bring back home and I realized that I have a shit ton of toys so because I love all these artists that created these figurines I begin to collect them and from $10 item I begin to collect $50, $200 and, and essentially all my salary and, and money is going to the toys and it was during a time where i was watching a lot of what do you call those like how it's made videos on youtube like how do you make hot dogs how do you make nuggets i love it uh, it's very fascinating because i think growing up in singapore it's almost like a bubble of sort i'm not really exposed to manufacturing like how products are made and so i thought okay i use the rest of my dollars that i have on a single flight to china guangzhou and went on alibaba and and find these couple of factories that manufacture toys combining my passions together and figure out really how it's made so i spent a month in, in shenzhen and this is not like the huge towers and beautiful luxury brands shenzhen right this is like three hours out in a village somewhere randomly and going to the toilet there's a hole in the floor right and that was it it blew my mind like what can i say but it was at a point of time that i realized i was nothing but a drop in the ocean and just conversing with the chinese partners and subsequently down the line i met a couple of chinese investors in shanghai as well and i thought that wow it's a different type of hunger and i respect that a lot i felt that no amount of education in singapore journey that i've been through in singapore could prepare me for that it is something that's totally out of my comfort zone. I came back, I think, very inspired to create something, creating something tangible and went on to develop the first collectible with my friend. His name is Clock too, because if I were to draw the figurine, I'm pretty sure that it would sell. So <laughs> I would get someone who's really good at it. And that was that. That was how Mighty Jacks was created. What an amazing journey. And I just love what you just shared not just the stages but also the moments in between right which is something that sometimes gets left out in a 500 word article or like bam these are the amazing things you've done and it's just a bunch of brand names right but i love the fact that you shared about your experiences and what you learned along the way let's dive into that a little bit more i mean you know i think one of the things that often people ask is what do i do with the in-between moment between my first project my first venture you know normally it doesn't go well right because the first time is your first time you don't know how to do it so i'm just kind of curious was there moments you know when you're packing up your things and starting to think about buying a ticket you know watching these videos like what was your mindset during that time 
Was it positive? Was it rough? And you were doing things differently now? How, how was that mindset like? That's a great question. I think I approach it very differently now. I, I, I think when we look back on it in retrospect, whether it's good or bad, it's just a journey or a end result that happened. We can't say for sure the impact down your journey. And at a point of time, I'm going to admit, it was probably the worst thing that I ever felt. I feel like I'm robbed of everything that I've created monetarily and also emotionally because sometimes perspective just change and the other partner or your thoughts are just not aligned. And that wasn't the case from the start, right? Or from the start, obviously, everyone's just like, okay, let's do this. Uh, but then you realize you can't control that. It's part and parcel of your journey individually. And at the point of time, I think I was too young to really understand that idea that this is normal. There's no good or bad. It's just regular. And I took it quite hard because at least for a week, I've been eating ice cream at least <laughs> and watching tons of YouTube, which was why I got stuck with how it's made. But when I look at the everyday life that I have now for the past two years, disappointments like that on the surface when it's supposedly negative have some way of finding itself back down the road. And you begin to realize, oh, it's actually an open-ended question. There is no real absolute. It is just something that isn't quite right now, but doesn't rule out what's to come in the next five years or how your life would pan out, right? And I've seen a lot of this. Circles, I call it, like this patterns. Initially bad, and then two years down the road, oh, you rekindled and something happened and it goes on for the better. Not to say that you go on better for the rest of the, your life, but it's just that cycle. And I learned to appreciate it and not have a knee-jerk effect to everything that happened and on the surface is positive or negative. I think that's too much. That's like stock market. That's like Bitcoin. <laughs> I think that's so true, right? Which is... When we are young and often externally, for example, with junior teammates, the room, you know, the suddenly very hot, then, you know, everyone's very cold, everybody's very cold, like you follow the, the mood, right? And then as leaders, we had to be like thermostats, you know, which is no matter how bad or how good, we always have that dial set to the equilibrium we want, like something bad happened, okay, how do we look at it? Something good happened, okay, you know, let's enjoy it, but also not get sucked up into it. I always tell people, it's like somehow you end up being very Zen, you know, you know, very Buddhist all of a sudden, you know, in this like, journey. That's exactly it, because in the beginning, all right, disappointments are disappointments, sure, you get sad. But every win, right, it's like, yes, you know, pop something, very exciting. But now my face is just like, okay, yeah, so how can we, like, make sure it's sustainable and how can we ring fence it? And you're right, because your emotion become like, like quite balanced almost. But it's a double-edged thing because people are very excited, right? <laughs> but we know that. Yeah, yeah, we can't go all the way on that spectrum. We gotta balance out. Yeah, no, exactly. It's just interesting because you enjoy it just as much as everyone. It's just that right. you also know it's like it will pass, right? Like right. this win does not mean 2021 is a good year. It's just a moment in time and it's so true. And you talk about it a little bit as well, which is this at Mighty Jacks, you know, you've grown it from a solo founder all the way to, you know, over 70 people, right? And so this is also probably the largest group of people that you actually ever manage. So I guess, how would you share that journey? What's the difference between leading as a solo founder versus leading a small team of people, your first employees, to leading 70 people? Like how would you chart the evolution of what your leadership style has to be or what differences you've had to make? Yeah, that's often quite a challenging part because 
the dynamics are totally different in these two groups, right? When we started out and you make your first few hires, I think it's almost like a final year project of sorts because you're in the trenches. I'm talking about deep trenches, like literally like everything you gotta handle. And everyone's looking for you for an answer to things. And I think that sort of makes you need to sprint a little bit quicker. Having foresight and vision is one thing, but the ability to execute or knowing how else you could execute to the best of it doesn't have to be entirely you. I think you got to be a bit smart about delegation. I learned that very early on, that delegation is probably one of the best skills that I have picked up. The assignment of ownership from you as a solo founder, which your brand is an extension of, that transfer of ownership is equally key as well towards the later stage. So in the beginning, it's really family-based. By family, I mean that your relationships are really like family. But the problem with that comes with family mindsets. Not literally, but you get that kind of mindset. And when you go to 10, 15, 20, and you realize that as a solo founder, you just can't have that amount of time or face time with each of them, then that's when I say the company takes on, it evolved by Pokemon right to the next stage. And it evolved in a way that is really good for the company, but it's not that great for you personally. But it is a journey that you must go through. It's quite painful, to be frank, because with a team of five, as opposed to a team of 15, I think people feel like they don't really have that initial feeling anymore. The founder is drifting away and you don't have that much face time and maybe the direction of company also have to pivot a little bit, but you don't quite understand why. And that leads to people being more disillusioned. And also you have a new wave of people coming in and out at that juncture. Of course, you also have people who stay throughout, which we do have a few, maybe about three or so. Those are people that believe in you, possibly much more so than they believe in the company. <laughs> and, and that's the truth because no one knows where the company can go. It has not manifest yet. But they believe in you as a person that we are able to guide them through this journey and that we will make decisions in the most objective manner as much as possible. So that trust is forged during the early days. Now, when you have a team of 70, that's never going to happen again. Well, possibly if it becomes a 500 people, 1,000 people company, possibly, yes, you know, these 70 people can become that pioneer part of things. But where I'm at right now, those journey that I have with those three people, it will never happen again. I think that creates a very high amount of mutual respect between uh, each of us. This is not the end because when it iterates into 200 people, 300 people, whatever it is, you will have these waves of people in and out over the next couple of years. I think sometimes it's very hard for a founder to accept that. It's very painful. It's very painful when you know that you need better people, you need more experienced people even, and you know you must make that swap. And that tough decision makes you a leader. Yeah, that's so true. Going to my second business, I was like something that I already knew, like, you know, you're hanging out with these great people that like exactly you say about family, right? And it's, it's sit down and tell myself like, this is not family. We're going to live and die by whether we're going to turn a profit, whether we're going to grow. And so we have this like very deep camaraderie, like army days, right? Like, you know, brothers, sisters in the trenches, like you said. And at the same point of time, you also have that high responsibility where you're going to evolve and make sure that there's food on the table for everybody, right? Because that's, we're here, but we're also here for the food for the table. And like you said, everybody has a choice to be in or out. Each time around, the early people who made a choice on you 
you have this very deep loyalty to I still have this very deep loyalty to them because I'm like, oh my God, in retrospect, you were totally stupid to trust in me in the early days because there was nothing to trust in, right? I mean, there's no no revenue, no yeah. big brand, no awards, you know what I'm saying, right? It's just like they say like, oh, Jeremy slash Jackson, I trust in you as a person, therefore I'm gonna sign up with you. Even when there's no one else, you know, you think to yourself and you meet other people who are founding something for the first time and they want you to join, for example, right? Yeah. And you're like, oh, would I be the first person in? You know, it's, it's an interesting thing that you really appreciate when you see how rare actually it is for people to make the bet on the person rather than the stars, you know, the brands or the six symbols. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's almost like venture as well, right? Because they're also taking a leap of faith on, on the founder and what you do. Yeah, it's definitely a big uh, transition for lots of people. Right. I'm kind of curious, you shared a little bit about, you know, obviously some of the evolution. So how do you change? I mean, you know, how do you stay on top of the changes as the company continues to grow? Is it like, I'm just trying out there, right? Reading or feedback review? Or how do you keep changing and keep improving yourself? Yeah, there's an intangible and tangible part to it, right? Because... I think on one hand, you can read everything and get educated on things. I think that's granted as a founder. That's your role. And for me, whether it's in masterclasses or, or speaking with um, other founders, because I'm a, I'm a solo founder and it gets lonely quite a fair bit. So when I speak with other founders, I realize that, oh my God, I'm not crazy. <laughs> it's like these are actual challenges that other founders face as well. And we don't really have to reinvent the wheel. We just need to have like a founders anonymous or something like that sort of unagony a little bit. I think that helped a lot because these founders came from different level, right? You you have 300 people, you have like 50 people and stuff like that. So that really helps to give an, an idea of what's to come and what are the challenges that you should focus on. But end of the day, you have not done it. End of the day, this is something that you, you materialize, but you have not executed. So in truth, you are at the front line as much as all the other team members are especially your C-level and, and all that. That's as far as you have been. But yet again, everyone's still looking at you for the direction. In the beginning, I think up to maybe like 20 over people, I always say, I always tell them, look, guys, I need to lean on you guys' help and build this together and visualize it a little bit because this is as far as, as I've been. Like, I have no idea how it would end up to be. But at this moment with the team right now, I don't say that at all. Because I realized that the vision is crafted by myself and the hard skills can be propped up by, by the people that we hire. I really appreciate that a lot because if I were to do it myself, there's no way. So then my vision, it's inspired by people like Virgin, like Richard Benson. I always identify with his story a lot because his business took on different iterations. It's quite diverse and how a brand name can be so diverse. And I realized that he always leans on his North Star, which is a single liner of what Virgin is, to be outrageous, to be against the norm. And he applies that throughout the different categories that he's in. And I like that a lot because I resonate heavily with a very strong, well-built brand that at the base is profitable. So I want to build that kind of business. What would you say your North Star is or what it could be? My passion is in building brands and businesses. I love playing business simulation games, city builders as well. 
I really like how everything forms together to create that vision of what that city could be. What could complement it is my current passion. So pop culture is one of those. And that's something that I've already, you know, I'm into for, for the last decade with um, art as well. You know, I collect art myself. And combining my passion for building business with that medium, with that content, which is art, is something that I love. So I imagine that I will always have that business component, brand building component, alongside whatever passion that is. And recently, it's food too. So I've been trying to go into that F&B part of things, talking to a couple of people who are in it. So I don't have a fix. I don't, I don't like to pigeonhole it as to what I can do. I think of it as life because each part of your journey, you have a different experience. You want different things. So I think a business is like that as well. You should grow organically instead of a, hey, grocery delivery is hot now, so let's, let's do that. Like It's not so much of transporting or anything like that. Because I think that when it comes out from you and it's a real emotion and a real connection, it can go very, very far. Amazing. What's interesting as well about the company that you've grown from zero to hero is it seems to have your name in it, Mighty Jacks. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like that was intentional? Was it someone that you started out with? How does it feel like to have embed to some extent your name inside the company? I think I've been debating with it for most recently because we're undergoing a full rebranding with our branding partner. And that came up. And a part of me sort of regretted it because at the point of time when I thought of Mighty Jacks, I was going through a phase of empowerment because of what happened during the camera part of things. And I wanted Mighty to empower the brand. Whether you like us or not, you still got to call us Mighty. Jacks was just, I guess, a random suggestion from a friend. And I guess I wanted it to come out on Google as a unique form, so JXX. And that worked very, very, very well, right? But when we look at where the company is going and how Jax could be formed part of it, but we begin to realize that Jax is just a module of Mighty. Can we have the Mighty brand be the all-encompassing vision of what we want to achieve in each of these different modules and, and, and categories? So the idea is more of that right now. But Jax, to me remains true because it is an extension of what I love. I grew up in the 90s. I love my pop punk music. In fact, I'm the only person in the, in the office that listens to pop punk studio, Blink-182 and stuff. And I love that. The aesthetic and the grunchiness of that style translate into the items that we create because these are conversational pieces. These are at times bordering between, it's in a gray area of things. And I like that conversations that we bring. And that's the kind of character that I am. And that's why Jack's all up. Uh, that's amazing. And it's kind of poetic, not just you know how you start out with it and your values with it. And also, the evolution of the name is actually paralleling your professional journey, right? In terms of the evolution of zooming out from the self to it being part of a larger whole, right? So it's kind of actually poetic in, a, in an interesting way and a common one as well. I'm just kind of curious, you know, obviously, we started to talk a little bit about pop culture. And obviously, you know, I still remember Bling 182 and everything else. It's the shock when suddenly the music you're hearing is suddenly becoming classic to the younger generation, old school karaoke. It's quite a thing, right? And I was like, no, it wasn't that long ago. Britney Spears and all that stuff, Justin Timberlake. That was like an era. It's not that long ago, but to the newer gen people. It's a way, right? And at the same point of time, stuff that we thought was really, at that time, in the closet a bit was comic books. I was reading my Superman comics and everyone thought I was a big nerd for reading stuff like that. Now, suddenly, it's 
very popular and all over the screen, right? Like X-Men and everything. So it's interesting to see like pop culture, so these waves in and out. What do you think about pop culture? Why are you so passionate about it? I think the pop culture that we understand or we see right now, it's a convergence of different fan bases. We can talk about art, entertainment, music, sports, gaming, and so on. It's really a convergence because, you know, I play games. I watch sports. I collect art as well. And my interest is as diverse as what pop culture is, which means I would buy things from each of these different brands or IPs, we call it cultural IPs. And definitely social media and different platforms has lent itself to that. Most recently, of course, TikTok for the much younger generation of people. And I feel with each generation, like you say, we in the 90s and you have your pop punk and all those go next door with Britney Spears and stuff. It defines a generation. And even until now, I still think that that is the best era. But if you ask my dad, or if you ask the youngest person in our team right now who's 19, then they have their own perspective of the best era, which is respectively theirs. And that's important because I think for a business, there will come a time where understanding what's cool and what's relevant, it's a pattern that you have to pass over to the younger guys in the team while you focus on how those IPs can be consolidated to extend your vision a little bit further. And now we are leaning heavily on him. We're working at football clubs and basketball clubs. And honestly, I lost touch of it. I stopped watching games because when you have a kid, you just don't do that <laughs> that much. And so I begin to lean on them. And you know what? Those team members, they love it when you lean on them like that because that's that amount of trust that you place in them. To, okay, if you say this is great, then let's invest in it. Let's do it. That's that sense of ownership that you build as well. But what's more important is also the IPs that you get or you, the brands that you work with keeps your brand healthy and relevant. So comics is just one part of it. And the amount of exposure that Marvel gets or DC gets at this point is unprecedented. It's never been done this way. And the amount of interest in consumer products right, have never been higher. And if we look at Disney from 1920s onwards, it was more about reinventing fables into a Disney form. And they touch on consumer products actually more of a side part of things. But right now, it's actually really, really massive. The whole idea of licensing is just such a massive revenue driver for this big brand. Yeah, it's really amazing to see that transition. And I really like what you said about one angle as professionals. The interesting thing about pop culture is the situation changes on the ground, but we're kind of like looking at the fundamentals and steering that course through all of it. And I think the second part that was interesting was kind of you talking a little bit about the macro industry piece about the reinvention of fables into merchandising and growth. And I think I really resonated with that because one of my hobbies now is just like reading these old school fairy tales, like Anubis, you know, like those like legends, those myths. They were really scary, you know, and pretty badass. They're like, you know, like, you know, like these gods are like running around beating up the demons and the trickster gods. You know, there's so many different versions of them in, in culture. So you just seeing like all these different characters, right? And I think I was just reflecting recently. I was like, oh, wait, you know, like Marvel is our modern day storyteller. Instead of like your elder idiot man around the fire who I've never met, but supposedly told all these stories back in the day. Now it's like just this giant team of old people, young people generating storylines that are understood by the world. So it's kind of interesting, right? What do you think about that? Well, it's definitely more efficient and far more effective. Obviously, the you know commercial value definitely helps generate these parts. But I also feel that at some point, it becomes a bit more complex than what we grew up with. I still find simplicity with some of the stories, whether it's 
any Python or some of the longer heritage stories or classic stories to be very, very attractive in that they deliver a single simple idea, whether is it about morals or anything that you take away, it's very simple. And that story delivers that. But I feel the last few years, because of the platforms and also the commercial teams behind it, it becomes very complex, a vast network. I worry that, you know, in the next couple of years, it might get even more intricate because people want more. And if you're on board the whole Iron Man journey and, and okay, now you want more and more complex to cater to the wants of a fan, that's absolutely reasonable to, to think that you will go that way because when you buy an item, whether it's you're, you're into music or, or collectibles, you usually buy a relatively affordable average item. And then you know how it is, you slip down a deep hole and you spend thousands on like the best signature electric guitar out there. You get, you get what I mean? So it will become a certain idea of uh, obsession of sort into that. And I think to cater to this group of fans who grew up with it, who understood it the way it was, they would want more and they would crave more. And maybe the simple storytelling just doesn't really quite cut it. Perhaps it's just the nostalgia in me that would think this way. Like I yearn for simpler times as well. But this seems to be the way that the world is moving into in terms of pop culture. That's so true. I firstly really love Annette Blyton and I grow with that stuff. So love it. And it's interesting because both of us turned into new fathers this year as well. So last week, I was just watching the season finale for Mandalorian. I signed up on Disney Plus to watch Mandalorian. I was watching that with my wife and enjoying a show that I watched as a kid, right? You know, Star Wars, my dad introduced that to me. And now first trilogy, great. Second trilogy, not so great in execution, but great in overall narrative. Last trilogy, I'm not going to talk about it too much. And then, you know, Mandalorian, awesome. My wife and I both enjoyed it at different levels. And then I looked at her and I said, I want to unsubscribe from Disney Plus because I'm done. That's the only show I wanted to watch. But now that we have a daughter, (laughs) I feel like maybe we're going to end up keeping it, right? Because some stories are nice to watch, right? Like Pixar or whatever it is. So, I mean, I'm just kind of curious as you look at your child and think about what stories you're going to introduce. I'm just kind of curious, what stories are you going to introduce your kid maybe in the coming few years? Well, first of all, I listen to Moana's songs five times a day. So you, you have to get yourself prepared for that. <laughs> Recently, my wife went on eBay, I think, and bought a book that was from her childhood. And it was the Adam's Family book. So it's this simple story about Adam's family, one of the episodes. And it actually has sounds by the side. So that's a team song, you know, and a couple of sounds as well. So for both of us, we tend to lean on our earlier childhood to provide that kind of experience to our kid, right? Because I feel we didn't turn out too bad, I think. And I really learned a lot through the Annie Python books or a couple of other series that's along the same line. Because there's, a, there's, there's sort of like a moral building type of you know, structure going on with that. And I think my wife wanted to share her passion as well because she's more of, she like Adam Family, she like a bit of more grotesque stuff and dark humor type of things. She wanted to share that experience with the kid. And I think this is a cycle because it's highly unlikely that you will want to push anything that you're unfamiliar with to your kid. I think the standard educational stuff is fine, the syllables, so that's okay. But the content 
the cultural, the IP part of it. I mean, what do you want? You want them to be aligned with you and feel the same way as you did when you were a kid, I think. And if you do have such a great childhood, then of course, you would do the opposite side of the spectrum, right? To make sure that the kid has what you want. I think then they'll grow up with that idea, a piece of you is still with them. But at the same time, that's probably not something they'll continue for their whole life. They'll probably learn the new culture stuff or whatever it is that's coming up. So I think there's a little bit of that. That's amazing. I guess one last question I have is, when you look at the stories that, because you deal with that every day, right? The fables, the characters, and also the stories of employees, and even the story yourself. You know, when you look at your child and you're thinking things true, what attributes are the stories that you're looking for to share over the next five to 10 years? What are the kind of stories that you would want them to really hear and for you to share with them? Oh, like specifically or in general? I think in general, but if you have specific examples, why not, right? Well, no one wants to be an asshole. I always say this because no one's set out to be a dick. But you see, the thing about being a founder is sometimes that you have to make, you know, between a bad choice or a worse choice. The thing is, some parts of the team may not align as well because each one of us have our own purpose and, and perspective. And at times it clashes. Creative and suits are most of the a generalization of what could happen usually. A conflict of interest, I, I would think. But as a leader, I think you sometimes just need to bite the bullet and make that kind of choice. And regardless of what people look at you as, and you've got to detach yourself from, from that almost. Your personal side of things and the corporate side of things. I know you're asking about my kid, but why this is so important is that I, I want him to realize that there is no absolute good decisions throughout your whole life. At one point of time, people are going to think you're a dick. The thing is, that's okay. Because your North Star and your compass allows you to make that decision and go through with it. You can't think so much in terms of a 360 degree where is it well covered or not. I don't think it's so much about that. I think it's about living with yourself for the decisions that you have made. Above all, I think that is the main life guidance that I want to leave him with. And that is true a lot of those stories that we grew up, uh, those simple stories that we grew up with because it's not bad, it's not good. It's just one of those things that you must make. Know that no matter what it is, then we will be there to empower you. You and I both have people like that in our lives. Through our journey, you have people that bad or good, we're your people, we're sticking with you. We understood why you did that. Because like I said, nobody wants to be an asshole, right? <laughs> it's just part of it. So that's what I believe that um, I should pass along. Your son is lucky to have a father and a storyteller like you, honestly. <laughs> Thanks. Awesome. Well, that comes to the end of the show. Thank you so much, Jackson. Yeah, I appreciate it, Jeremy. This has been fun.